Welcome back to Expanding the Continuum, where we explore the clinical, ethical, and programmatic issues that emerge when providing HIV care to survivors of violence. We invite luminaries in the field to discuss the real implications of a health sector response to intimate and patriarchal violence and the intersections with HIV. This podcast is brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Thanks for joining us. In the first season of Expanding the Continuum, we sat down with Ashley and Robin to learn about their work on building partnerships in the Positively Safe Project. Today, we're turning the tables and Ashley will be asking us about our work at Futures and the evidence-based intervention cues to address IPV in healthcare settings. Enjoy. So today we're going to learn about an approach that HIV testing and care programs can use to address and prevent violence in clinical settings. I'm joined by Sorebe Koke and Kate Vanderteig from Futures Without Violence. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. This is fun to be on the other side of the microphone. Yeah, I am excited to get to talk about this with you both. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think there's so much that um, organizations have to learn from y'all. So um, what is the approach that you are going to be sharing today, Sorbi? Today, we want to, just a little bit of background, Futures Without Violence is um, a, a nonprofit based in San Francisco that has been working on uh, exploring how the healthcare setting can be a site for uh, intervention around violence, prevention around violence. And we've, been, we've put a lot of effort into supporting healthcare providers in, in, um, with training and technical assistance on trying to, on, on how to respond. And so in that process, we, uh, we early on were pushing really hard for screening for domestic violence in the healthcare setting. And over the decades of work and research and implementation in clinical settings, we came to understand that the approach needed to shift. And so the approach we'll be talking about today is really an illustration of that shift that we've made. So with this intervention that we call the CUES intervention, that's C-U-E-S, CUES, um, healthcare providers, health professionals of all sorts talk with their patients about how relationships affect their health. That's the cornerstone of it and how they can get support. So rather than screening where we're waiting for the patient or respondent to disclose something in order to give them resources and support, we don't rely on disclosure of abuse to provide the information and resources patients may need. So by using this methodology, providers can ensure that their clients or patients are aware of what services are available in their community and also have some information to share with others that they know. So it's kind of a holistic approach that really centers the survivor, the patient, uh, without waiting for disclosure. Uh, we'll talk more in detail about, about what it is and exactly why, but the history of it is really seeing that screening wasn't enough, you know, that... Um, 
the people who didn't disclose violence were always going to not disclose violence, and we didn't need to know what they had endured in order to connect them to resources. Right. So historically, why don't survivors choose to disclose in healthcare settings? Gosh, there's so many reasons, but um, we can all probably reflect and think about times or moments when we've just withheld information from our healthcare provider, whether it's some kind of uh, concern about judgment or what will be shared with other people. So there were there are concerns that are about um, privacy and confidentiality, like who else will find out about this and what will the consequences be that patients might have concerns about. Um, and then, you know, that beyond the just the fear of judgment of the healthcare, the clinical setting, you know, they're just talking about um, experiences of trauma can cause distress, the re-victimization of having to tell one story over and over again, are, are some of the many, many reasons that that patients don't disclose or don't want to disclose. And I think just to hop in there too, you know, thinking about, you know, why a survivor would choose or not choose to answer yes or no to a screening question about intimate partner violence. Like the whole point of screening, you know, from from a clinical perspective is um, really focused on identification of survivors, ostensibly for the purposes of getting them, you know, the care that they need. But what we actually know from the data is that screening elicits very low disclosure rates relative to how many people are actually surviving violence. So, if our end goal is really about making sure um, survivors are getting connected to care and supportive services, um, then identification is not is not getting us there, right? Our screening questions are not getting us to that end goal of um, getting folks the care that they need. And the other thing that I really want to underscore around what Sudebi was saying is just the the threat of non-consensual systems involvement. In so many states, it's really unclear, and not just from a patient perspective, but also from a provider perspective. If I say, yes, I'm experiencing domestic violence, are they going to be calling child welfare? When when the goal um, or when the mechanism of support is identification, we're really losing an opportunity to support people who there's, it's just not safe for them to talk about what they're going through um, because there's just a lack of clarity around around what's going to happen to that information. Yeah, 100%. Definitely all those layers of oppression and the distrust of systems and, um, you know, how historically they've really taken advantage of folks um, is so important to point out and how it, this impacts the healthcare that folks are accessing. Um, so what are the steps of, of the Q's intervention? Yeah, so the Q's intervention is really shifting beyond that identification focus. Um, it's kind of, you know, a little bit outside the medical model because it the point is democratization of information and services, right? Um, and so we use an acronym because it might be helpful for some people. Um, so our acronym is CUES, um, and that outlines the different steps of the intervention, where C stands for confidentiality. And that really 
is your first step. And it's about establishing the container where someone who may or may not be experiencing violence or um, unhealthy relationship dynamics has the space to make decisions about what they want to talk about with their provider, when they want to talk about um, what's going on in their relationship, just really has, has the information they need to be able to make those decisions. So the steps... Um, the first step C is really about making sure that you're not, you know, you're um, only talking to patients about relationships and how relationships impact health or without any anyone else there. So you're making sure there's not kids in the room or, um, you know, a partner or a family member present. So you're really establishing just that one-on-one um, opportunity for at least some part of the visit. And if that you know, if that part of the visit isn't possible, if you're not able to have a one-on-one conversation, then you're saving that conversation about relationships and violence and how they impact health for another visit. The other piece around that is kind of coming back to what we were talking about um, relative to, um, you know, knowing where your information is going. So providers are really offering that information up front, you know, really establishing Um, You know, very few states have a mandatory reporting uh, law for domestic violence still. Um, Unfortunately, California is one (laughs) that still has that. So in California, it's super important for healthcare providers to be offering to their patients. If you were to tell me that, um, you know, the reason I'm treating you today is connected to um, violence in your relationship, then I just want you to know that that is something that I would have to share with local law enforcement in our county. So I just want to let you know that. Um, so really making sure that survivors, patients have that information up front so that they can make a decision about whether or not that's something that they want to share in that instant. Luckily, most states don't have that mandatory reporting law, but still important to educate patients on what happens to their information. The next step, universal education and empowerment, is really um, that piece around normalizing conversations about relationships in health settings, you know, affirming that relationships impact our health in both good and bad ways, and that the health setting is a safe space or an open space to be able to bring those conversations to your to your trusted provider. Like, I care about what's happening in your life, patient, and I want you to know that I'm here to support you um, because I know that it impacts your health. Um, it's also about making the connection between relationships and health um, so that it doesn't seem like this really out of left field conversation, you know, a a screening tool that has no context whatsoever. So it's really about creating that context, making sure every patient who walks in our doors is getting a a little bit of information that tells them how to get support and if they're struggling in their relationship or if they're experiencing violence in their relationship. So that's that's what makes it universal is we're not waiting for someone to say, oh, yes, I have been hit, kicked, slapped and punched by my partner in the last year for then to make a referral to a domestic violence center. We're making sure all patients have access to that information and then encouraging them to share that information with their friends and community to have that um that you know phone number or access to a local domestic violence organization um, where they can share with a friend and family member um, 
who might be experiencing violence in their relationship. And so the last step, S for support, is, you know, like disclosure is certainly not the goal of the Q's intervention, but of course, um, and also what we learned in our research is that um, when you are establishing trusting relationships through a universal education approach for IPV, that disclosures do actually increase. The rate of disclosures go up. Um, so really being able to offer supportive messaging um, and it's really about, you know, gratitude. Like, thank you so much, um, you know, person sitting in front of me um, for sharing this really difficult experience with me. Like, thank you for trusting me with your story. And then, you know, offering a warm referral. Um, I know the folks, you know, down at our local um, support organization, Ashley is a really um, helpful person. I, she's helped other patients of mine who've been struggling in similar situations. If you ever wanted to talk with her, I could set up a time for you to do that, or I can give you the her direct phone number, or we could even call right now um, if that was something you wanted to do and if you wanted to use our clinic phone today. So those are kind of the overarching steps of the intervention. Uh, C for confidentiality, UE for universal education and empowerment, and S for support. You know, I really, really like this approach. Um, I've never really been a big fan of screening. So I think this is just such a great way of of also building relationship with folks. So they do have that, that, you know, that comfort and being able to talk to you that they know that you're informed about what they're going to disclose if they do decide to disclose. So I think this is fantastic and such a great tool um, for, for HIV organizations and domestic violence organizations to be considering when they're talking with, with uh, survivors. So Kate, you mentioned, um, the, you know, you, you briefly mentioned research. Um, so how did you all develop this approach? What was the research behind it? Kind of the original research behind this came from, you know, just needing to figure out what was going to work now that we've established that screening wasn't actually doing what we were hoping it would do. What, what do we do instead um, in healthcare settings? You know, through conversations with um, survivors and really looking at the literature of what um, survivors and patients say they want from their healthcare providers um, when they're experiencing uh, domestic violence. That's where this intervention is really born from. And so we know from survivors that they want their healthcare providers to offer them options, to really listen, to not be judgmental, but really instead things that increase safety and reduce barriers. And then we also know that survivors directly said, like, pushing for me to disclose is not building a trusting relationship. It's It seems, you know, that seems like there's another motive behind that where you're trying to uncover something about me as opposed to supporting me um, regardless of with what I choose to share with you. So knowing that, um, knowing what we, what survivors say they want from health providers um, is where uh, the universal education approach came from. And so this approach led by um, a researcher, Dr. Elizabeth Miller, who we have the pleasure of learning with and working with really closely, was tested throughout reproductive health settings um, and school-based health, um, health centers. 
And what they found um, from a patient perspective is that the universal education model was actually associated in reproductive health settings with a 71% reduction in pregnancy pressure. And also unintentionally, women um, in these settings and all the patients were women, were 60% more likely to end a relationship because it felt unsafe. And then in in the school-based health setting, they learned that universal education models were associated with a threefold increase in disclosure among youth who had experienced uh, relationship abuse as well as decrease in reported isolation and reduced reproductive coercion, and that they were much more likely to reach out to supportive services as a result of receiving this intervention. From the provider perspective, we learned that this universal education approach was really addressing a lot of the barriers that were stated by by health providers and clinicians as to why they weren't weren't addressing IPV. And so it was really helping them, um, you know, have an increased awareness about the complexity of issues faced by survivors, helping them to be able to respond when there was a disclosure, but also not feeling this pressure of like, you know, really trying to um, uncover the truth or discover that someone was experiencing violence. Like that wasn't the point. The the focus shifted for them um, away from identification and towards, you know, just making sure every patient got the same um, information about where to reach out. And then lastly, another lesson that they learned in the research was around survivors and patients coming back to say, can I please have another, you know, more information about this so I can share it with my friends and family? Because I'm not going through this, but I know someone who is. And so that was like a total exciting discovery from this and also a way to frame it so that um, the conversation did feel more normalized in a, in a clinical interaction. So you're offering information to patients saying, this may not be useful for you right now, but I would you know love for you to share it with friends and family. Um, so as a way to, you know, maybe feel less like, why is my provider asking me about this? Oh, it's because they want me to bring it to my community. And that way, you know, the information is getting out there even more. I think it's, a, it's helpful to remember that this is iterative. We're constantly learning and improving our I- implementation strategies. And so... The research grew like that as well. It's why we we were big advocates of screening in the beginning and through the research we learned from survivors about what was really needed in the clinical setting. So um, there will always be new new emerging um, ideas and methodologies. So, so, you know, there's there's a lot to look forward to in the development of this work, I think. Yeah, I think it's so great that it is um, really survivor-informed, um, you know, and that, that it's constantly evolving. Um, and I think in order to do this work well, um, that we have to constantly be looking at what we're doing and, and kind of evaluating how it's working and, and how we can be improving our services. So I think that's such an important piece of that. I also really appreciate that, 
you know, you talk about this intervention, but it could also be preventative, right? And you're talking with folks that they're kind of being more aware of, of the, the tactics of domestic violence. They know what to look for, you know, and, and, and helping other folks um, and their family and their friends um, to be able to realize those signs that's there too. So it is this twofold um, uh, approach, which is great. In the UE step of cues, um, health healthcare staff are offering uh, patients information about how relationships impact our health. How did they do this? Sure, this is like a very sweet innovation that has really grown in our in our work. We call it the safety card. Very straight, straightforward, descriptive, and builds on, draws from. Uh, domestic violence work, uh, you know, the sort of small palm-sized card that can be tucked away, safely hidden, whether it's um, in a shoe or in a shirt or, it, you know, in a, in a discreet pocket or somewhere in the purse, um, and has information and resources that help patients connect their relationships to their health. So it offers the kind of, um, it offers a sort of reflective exercise for the reader. Um, it's designed a little bit like a self-help quiz, you know, like you might find in a, in a magazine and invites you to ask yourself a few questions about the, st the state of your relationship. So it starts off with kind of reflecting back what, what, what a healthy relationship looks like, if things are going well, what it might look like, and then kind of goes into um, unhealthy dynamics. And if, if anything is happening like this in your life, there are resources. You can talk to your healthcare provider, every safety card. And now we have dozens of different safety cards that cater to specific clinical settings or specific populations, and certainly many, many languages. Um, but we'll always have on the back panel of the safety card. It's sort of a, it folds into being the size of a average business card, but it opens up accordion style to have a few different panels of information. And on the very last panel, there will always be um, hotline numbers that are relevant to the community or health setting that we're we're addressing in the in the safety card. So the tool itself is both a patient education tool and a kind of provider cue. So when the if the provider is saying, I'm talking to all the patient all my patients um, about their relationships, or I'm sharing this safety card with all my patients, feel free to take a look at it and let me know if you have questions. Or we're we're talking about um, healthy relationships because so many women who come in to our clinic have experiences to kind of really naturalize the conversation to make it to really convey how universal it is both unfortunately the experience of unhealthy relationships and the 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 conversation with the healthcare provider. So the safety card serves as a tool for the provider as well as patient education. And we always, always um, encourage providers to give two cards, just as Kate mentioned earlier. Like we learned from the research that altruism has a very powerful role to play in this, in the community level prevention that this offers, you know, where people want to help the people they care about and having something they can offer 
their sister, cousin, friend, brother. It's powerful. You know, what we've learned um, in the research is that it's really, really powerful. So the safety card is like the linchpin in this whole effort, in this whole intervention, because it both provides the information to everyone universally and gets to multiply in the community. And for the HIV testing and care setting, um, we had the just amazing privilege of working with the Positive Women's Network um, to make a card specifically for HIV care settings. So that that safety card is um, somewhat unique um, in that it you know hits on some of the some of the ways that a partner could be you know trying to hurt or control. Um, a, a patient who was living with HIV um, or who was seeking HIV testing services. Um, so it kind of gets into the specifics on that um, and then offers, you know, more specific harm reduction information relative to HIV um, and surviving violence and relationships. Um, and then the other, the other um, piece of that card is that it is gender neutral. So that HIV care settings could be using it with with all patients um, who who come into their setting. Yeah, it's it's. Thank you for mentioning that, Kate. It's really important to acknowledge that a lot of our materials were developed in the context of reproductive health care and adolescent health care settings, and so we are also in a period of evolution ourselves again to really take a good look at how we um, reframe some of this to be not only thinking about cis women of reproductive age um, or adolescence and, and broaden the way we're talking about relationships and health. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a great point. But I will attest to um, how incredibly helpful the, the Futures um, Palm Cards are. They really are a great tool for, for programs to have on hand. Um, you know, I always think about like when, when we're working with a survivor, how kind of overwhelmed they can become in a moment. And sometimes that conversation just can't happen. So being able to hand them something and say, take your time, look at it when you can in a safe place, that can be so helpful also for that, that building of a relationship between, you know, a patient and advocate or a survivor advocate um, relationship. So it's such a, such a helpful tool. I highly recommend everyone check those out. Kind of moving along to the support piece of the cues um, and connecting patients with support services, what has to be in place before even getting to this stage? In order to be able to make warm referrals to for patients who are experiencing violence or are worried about a friend or family member who might be experiencing violence in their relationship, it's the responsibility of the provider and their clinical setting to have strong, robust, and evolving partnerships with domestic violence organizations and other kinds of community-based organizations that offer um, safety planning services to people who are experiencing violence in their relationships. So, you know, it's really, you know, the bread and butter of what you all talk about at Positively Safe, which is like, how do we build those um, those partnerships? And so I hope everyone goes back and checks out the episodes on building partnerships. But 
Um, you know, some of the questions that might come up as a HIV testing or care program is implementing a universal education approach to IPV is, you know, who who in our community is offering these services for survivors? Um, and sometimes that's, you know, a domestic violence shelter. Sometimes it is a, um, you know, very culturally or community specific organization that has, um, you know, domestic violence specialists. Um, sometimes it's another kind of organization. So finding out who, who in your community is providing those services um, if you're not partnered with them already. Um, and then just starting a conversation around what do we both need to do, you know, both the clinical setting and the the DV pro, uh, provider program, what do we both need to do to come to the table to make sure that there, you know, is a continuum of care between the HIV program and and the, the DV program? And so some of the questions around cues that might come up are, you know, is there a way that we can set up a bi-directional referral procedure so that all of the providers in our clinical setting know how to get in touch with the DV program, know what services are available or not available, um, and can really in-depthly describe uh, to patients how they can access those services, what those services in support look like, um, and kind of what, what the process might be so that they can really paint the picture for patients. And also on the flip side, um, the DV program has, you know, a robust connection to a health provider, um, to an HIV program so that they can make sure that all of the, the survivors accessing their services have access to expedited HIV testing or expedited HIV care, um, or even, you know, just kind of uh, peer peer navigator support around staying in care. So there's so many different ways that HIV programs and DV programs can work together um, and partner. Um, and it is it's just so important for this this intervention really to to be meaningful for patients. Increasingly, we know that you know there are so many factors that affect people's health and, so using the same vision around partnership uh, to connect people to resources of all kinds, you know, um, whether it's addressing food insecurity or uh, discrimination, housing issues, they, we have to remember and begin to, if, not al- if we haven't already, really see these as connected to violence prevention. We won't see progress in a way until we're thinking about more holistically about um, patients' lives and providing those kind of, those resources through the partnerships we build in our community. So it's just a little plug to extend this even beyond um, intimate partner violence or healthy relationships. And I know we talk about a lot of these issues in the other episodes of this podcast, but this is, I think everyone has mentioned it already, like this is the, such a key part of this, this intervention and what we know is possible for, you know, a health system's response to partner violence is to be thinking about partnerships all the way around the patients, not, not just with one or two organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, folks are, are accessing services, you know, all over the place. So uh, I think 
being thinking in terms of non-traditional supports, I think is so important. You know, we, we realize that mainstream domestic violence organizations are not going to be the need for every person that we're working with. And we have to have those relationships outside of that to, you know, to, to be able to provide them with that service, whatever that is that they need. So such a, so many great points you all have, have brought up. So I'm so excited that we're having this conversation and learning so much. So the other piece of this that I've, I've been thinking a lot about is around like adaptation. So how do you adapt it for different communities, like rural communities or, you know, um, other languages or different ages? You talked about like school, um, school-based health programs. Um, so what does that kind of localization adaptation process look like? Well, I, you know, it can look any number of ways and it can really be up to communities um, to envision it. We definitely make the safety card available in in a you know in in design format to for uh, local communities to localize the hotline numbers and the information about local resources on the back panel um, s- certainly for language adaptations many communities around the country have done deeper uh, processes by which they adapted the text you know not just translated the words but really adapted the messaging to be responsive to the specificities of their their community um i think that we have a lot a lot a lot to learn still you know about what would what would be more useful in a <clears throat> excuse me rural community for instance or in a community with lower literacy levels i mean i think we try with our existing safety card to um, kind of operate at an eighth grade, uh, fifth to eighth grade reading level, but it's not always the case. So there's lots of room there for adaptation. We want to encourage people to who get these safety cards, take a look at them and see what how you might localize it. When it comes to younger audiences, as in younger patients, we do have a few cards that are really dedicated to thinking about them I think the other piece around adaptation that we rely heavily on is, you know, when we're saying like, oh, this, I really want to bring this approach to my community or to my specific, you know, kind of health setting. A lot of what we start with is just focus grouping with survivors. Like, what do you want out of a resource um, like this? Like, what is some of the specific concerns in your community? Like, what are some of the specific, you know, nuances of relationship dynamics? What are the specific ways that you engage in harm reduction and safety planning? What are some of the, you know, specific resources that are most helpful to you? Um, so that's that's a lot of the times like where we start is through focus groups and learning learning from survivors about what they need relative to their specific community. That's great. Yeah. So, kind of. A- following that up in terms of like adapting for communities and stuff, I'm thinking about like, you know, if organizations or communities want to start, you know, implementing this process, like how, how have you all seen, um, or been, been able to go about getting buy-in from clinics to talk about violence and, you know, leaving that, uh, mentality around like screening behind? Oh, this is such a good question, Ashley. Um, In the HIV care setting, I think it's a little bit easier than in other clinical settings because, well, first we know the prevalence of violence among people living with HIV is, or experiences of violence, lifetime experience of violence is high, higher than the national average. So 
they've they see it they see it people who work in care hiv care they see uh how unhealthy relationships affect their patients and clients so it's really a matter of hooking them and saying here this is an approach that you can try the leaving screening behind is a little harder i think because so many funding kind of streams have like kind of tucked screening into it as like a metric, you know, of how we assess who we're serving. So it does require a little bit of like donor advocacy, like donor education, you know, like this, this approach makes more sense and here's what, here's how we want to do it. But honestly, I think for providers or administrators who might be making decisions about this, the data bears itself out. You know, we, um, we know that people do not disclose with screening alone. You know, it's a very, very, in clinical settings, the range is so low. It's like maybe one to 14% or something of people who have ex- had a lifetime experience of partner violence share in, in a screening setting, in, the, in, in, in a healthcare setting. Um, and it typically is around 7%. Whereas, what we know is that there's this huge population of people under the water, you know, that have experienced violence or some kind of coercion or control in their relationships that have never sought out services and will probably not disclose to anybody, including their healthcare provider. So getting people information um, becomes a little bit like a no brainer once, once it's sort of explained that way. So there's that. And there's, uh, and there's the fact that this was very survivor informed, and I think providers and administrators of health systems do respond to that understanding that when it's like patient informed um, resources, that, that you know it's an opportunity to really be responsive. Um, but yeah, the leaving screening behind, you know, and we say cues can be done as a complement to screening. If screening is required by your funder, for instance, and you, or it's built into your electronic medical records and there's just no taking it out at this point, you know, there's various barriers, institutional structural barriers to quick pivots, so to speak. Um, We can do this first, start with this conversation and universal education and follow up with the screening. So it's not so, it's not a throwaway piece. It's not sort of out of context. It's not um, outside of the relationship building, which was, which is what we're really trying to do. So, you know, it doesn't have to be either or, um, but if it's required, if screening really needs to stay, we encourage folks to use this methodology also. And I think the only other thing I would add on to that in terms of implementation is shifting to a universal education approach will require, you know, in addition to building a partnership with a DV program, will also just require things like training, training um, the clinicians and, you know, really the whole, all of the staff within, within an HIV program, not just the rates of violence, not just the impact on um, HIV care continuum, but also just on how to offer the intervention, how to establish a confidential space to have conversations, how to engage in a universal education um, conversation. And then, of course, you know, practicing how to 
how to offer supportive messaging to survivors who disclose and how to um, make a warm referral. But, you know, after that training happens, it's not like there needs to be a light switch and then the next day we everyone changes what they're doing and everyone has to be, you know, implementing cues within, you know, every every patient interaction. It can it can be an iterative um, an iterative process, as Sue Debbie was saying, really just, you know, maybe trying it out, seeing how it goes, tweaking it, uh, practicing um, during morning huddle on each other. Um, so it really can, can be integrated in a way that makes sense for that individual uh, program and um, doesn't feel like, oh my gosh, this is a big change that's too much too soon and just feels like another thing that I have to do within my short clinical interaction time. So putting in putting in the thought and the time to, to, to build it up in a meaningful way, um, I think can really go a long way. Yeah, that's such a great point. It's so interesting to think how just this, this one intervention or this training could have such a positive impact across the entire healthcare system or health um, delivery of health because it really rethinks on how we're interacting, you know, patient, uh, doctor-patient um, relationships. I, I, I think there's so much that could, could really come out of, of this one intervention, you know, and we, and we know healthcare workers, they already have a lot on their plate, especially these days. So, um, tell us a little bit about how, how this approach reduces barriers for providers to address intimate partner violence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, healthcare workers have a lot on their plates. And in fact, one of the things that this technique, this methodology offers is one, it's an extremely short intervention. It is so short, and the results, the outcomes, the utility of it is so great that the value of the short intervention is really profound. Um, to think about how um, providers feel like it's not really their job, like they can't do this also, is to remind them that we are not expecting them to become experts in this. You know, the whole point of the partnership building is to take it off your shoulders, actually, to be able to say, you know, a lot of why people don't screen is because they don't know what to do with a positive disclosure. And so they feel scared and worried, like, I'm not, I'm going to say the wrong thing, or I don't know where to send them. I, there's no cure for the situation. I can't snatch them out of this abusive relationship. So I don't even want to ask. But what we're offering with this intervention or this approach is build those partnerships and the, sh the weight of the actual, like the support and the ongoing care ends up landing on your partner because they are skilled and have expertise in this. And so you don't have to be the expert. So it has, you know, there are a lot of like common barriers that providers raise that are, that can be addressed by implementing this. And, and I, I really appreciate you, Kate, for talking about that training piece, because it just the, the act of practicing that introduction of the safety card, that simple, you know, we've started to share this with all our patients, you know, just that phrase, or practicing what you say when you get a disclosure uh, unexpectedly. I'm so glad you were able to 
you felt safe, comfortable to tell me, thank you so much for sharing with me, you know, or whatever feels natural to the person, you know, getting some practice saying that with your colleagues and in, in sort of mock experiences is, is another way to reduce the barrier. It, it takes away the charge of the, the potential experience, you know? Great. And, you know, um, I, I think you bring up a, a great point around like just practicing, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult when you're starting something new and feeling comfortable and confident and particularly around having conversations um, uh, around intimate partner violence. Um, so I think, yeah, if you have someone that you can consistently practice with, where you feel comfortable, you know, being able to say this, and then it kind of becomes um, just natural, when that res- when that does that disclosure does happen, you you just instinctively know what to say. Um, so such a great point. So last question: Where can folks get more information about cues? Yeah. So I guess the easiest place would be on our website, um, ipvhealth.org, um, and on on the website ipvhealth.org, you will find everything about cues and the universal education approach, all of the evidence behind it, as well as training modules, training modules specific to HIV care programs, um, how to partner with your local domestic violence organization, how to order safety cards, which are available through Futures Without Violence for free, except for a tiny, you know, fee to cover shipping. So yeah, the website is ipvhealth.org, but also we can link to it in the show notes of this episode. And I think just the last shout out that I wanted to share was this coming February. So February and... Um, Yeah, February 2022, staff at Futures Without Violence will be hosting a learning collaborative for community health centers and other um, Ryan White funded HIV programs to be able to come together over a series of four weeks um, to learn more about cues, learn more about implementation, but also hear from some survivors who are living with HIV, and then also very excited to have Ashley um, coming to talk about, you know, the real nitty gritty about um, starting partnerships between HIV care programs and domestic violence organizations. So we will also link to more information about that learning collaborative um, in the show notes of this episode. And I hope that people check that out and apply because we would love to have you join us. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to being a part of that training initiative um, with you all. I think it's going to be such a, a great um, opportunity to hear from, from healthcare providers and survivors and to really continue the conversations and learning. Um, this has really been such an informative conversation. I, I hope all of our listeners gained as much as I did from our chat. Thank you both again so much for, for being here and sharing. Um, and I hope all of our listeners will tune in for our next episode. Thanks, Ashley. It was great to be here with you. Thanks for joining us today on Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and at nnedv.org. Thanks for listening.